Well, guys, I'm afraid I have come to a great and terrible understanding that this is, in fact, still a very good film. Go figure. But that's not what you're here for. These aren't reviews, after all. These are ruminations. You know, the funny thing, Carrie Elwes, who was, who was in this film, obviously, as you know, the main character, Wesley, did you know this was his seventh role ever? I was actually sitting down trying to figure out how to really discuss this. You know I've talked about two types of films, right? Although this applies to fiction in general. You can have Star Wars, or you can have Jurassic Park. Let me explain what I mean by that. Jurassic Park had all the pieces in place, and it was amazing. Star Wars had none of the pieces in place, and it was amazing. Because sometimes things just kind of perfectly line up and stumble into an amazing work when, honestly, it probably shouldn't have. That's Star Wars. And then sometimes you have a Jurassic Park. Believe it or not, this is actually a Jurassic Park, which is funny because this film kind of bombed, at least in the theaters. Uh, this film did, did not do super well, and that really sucks, actually. This came out in 1987. I didn't see it in the theaters because I'm not sure anybody did. <laughs> oh, God, like, there, there was no ad campaign. Uh, hang on, uh, what do we got here? There was no, uh, there were no trailers. Um, where is it? There's, I actually found a list from a quote from one of the writers. There was no trailers, there was no uh, spot on TV. I, I, apparently that's all I wrote down was those two points. But yeah, there was nothing completely under-marketed, which actually reminds me of another good film I rather enjoy that bombed because of lack of marketing. Last Action Hero. Either way, the lack of support on this just kind of... And as a direct consequence, here we are. A film that is so unique in... Well, unique's the wrong word. So perfectly positioned in that type of concept that I named an entire lorium after it. The Princess Bride effect. Which is when something comes out, and it's amazing, but it bombs. But, and this is critical, over time, you know, word of mouth and just... You know, things happen and people slowly become more and more aware of it. And it's like, oh, hey, this is actually really good. You could probably name a lot of books, movies, games, music, shows that apply for, you know, Princess Bride Effect. It is an unfortunate reality because, well, as much as I make fun of marketing, it is an incredibly critical tool when it comes to anything. I, I do think that mismarketing is a huge problem, but you need to do marketing at all. You know, there needs to be some kind of... Like, have you seen the posters for this film? The original posters? The one with Savage on the poster? And, um... Oh, God, what's his name? Falk. Peter Falk? <laughs> what? Anyways. But I mentioned this film did have all the pieces in place. So it had Carrie Elwes, who was starting his career, Robin Wright... Ironically, she would end up playing Jenny over in Forrest Gump, a.k.a. another terrible, <laughs> abusive... Jenny's just the worst in Forrest Gump, my God. Uh, Peter Falk, who this is obviously post-Columbo, but still, he adds wonderful weight to things. The aforementioned Fred Savage, who was still doing his child career thing. Wallace Shawn, uh, he's awesome. Andre the Giant, who was awesome. Also, Christopher Guest. That one really amused me. He plays the six-fingered man, the Count. Did you know he has a hereditary peerage? If you don't know what that means, I'll summarize. He is actually an aristocrat. He is actually a noble in Britain, in real life. Uh, we also had, uh, what else? Oh, yeah, Chris Sarandon. Can't dismiss him. Well, I haven't seen him in a lot of things. He does a good job of it, a particular type of role. In fact, I most remember him from D Space Nine. But that's not true, because I didn't know he played... Jack Skellington. Oh yeah, by the way, we will actually be covering Nightmare Before Christmas later this year, so that'll... That's just... Wow! I actually did not know that. He also plays Skellington in the game, so like Kingdom Hearts, for example. Also, the book... So, this is kind of funny. I mentioned it has all the pieces in place. Similar to Jurassic Park, the script for this adaptation was done by the original author. Goldman himself actually worked on this script. And it's one of the reasons why the film has such a variance from the book. Whereas the book was trying to be meta-narrative and was trying to shuffle itself into different directions and had a bit more, huh, when it came to the story, this is portrayed more of a lighthearted parody 
of, you know, fantasy novels and true love romances and blah, 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 which I think works a lot better for its format. It's also probably worth noting that Goldman was incredibly terrified of the fact that this, this was going to go badly. Like, he was actually literally praying out loud, so loud, that they were catching him on the mic and they had to be like, dude, dude, chill, it's okay, we got this. And of course, I shouldn't even mention the fact that when they first ignited uh, Robin Wright on fire for the one scene, he flipped out and it's like, dude, it's okay, it's, this is part of the script. Because again, he was so, and I don't blame him, by the way, he was so nervous and so upset. After all, this was the sixth time they've tried to do this. I thought about writing down all the attempts, but just trust me, there were five attempts to try and adapt his book to film before this. All of them had flopped massively. In fact, uh, at one point, he had, he I say he had to, he chose to go ahead and buy back the rights to filming his book out of pocket money back from Fox, who had the rights at the time, just because of how badly things were being bungled. But this brings me to a point. I mentioned that parody and that lighthearted thing. That is a key point, a very critical and key point, because, well, this is Galaxy Quest, isn't it? Or, to be more accurate, Galaxy Quest is this. There are several ways to do parody, but the type I tend to enjoy most is the type that obviously and overtly comes from passion, love, an actual, genuine enthusiasm for the thing you are making fun of. Like Galaxy Quest. Like this. Like Spaceballs, to use another example which we've already covered. Uh, or Robin Hood Men in Tights, to tie that into this film. That kind of intimate understanding and knowledge allows you to make fun of it better, because you know it. You know it inside and out. I mean, as the old saying goes, why do you think so many jokes involve romance and relationships? So, this film, while it is constantly winking at the camera and making fun of its own tropes, is doing so in such a... It's, it's coming from gushing, basically. And I think that undercurrent tone really helps to make the work a lot better. I should also mention, I watched this film when I was pretty young. And I'm going to be mentioning a couple things as we go through it. Like right at the beginning. I was aware of the film before I was aware of the book. I actually went back and read the book. Didn't, didn't actually care for it that much, if I'm being completely honest. But, you know, I, I wasn't even aware of the book at first. Which brings me to my first question. How many of you are more aware of the film or the book? Bonus question, how many of you knew there was a book that this was based off of? Just curious. No judgment. We open up, and Savage's character, I actually don't remember his name, uh, but Fred Savage's character is sitting there playing hardball, which actually made me laugh. I've never actually never played hardball, but I will admit, I thought they were playing an NES uh, baseball game, which I don't know the name of, don't, don't ask me, that my uncle used to have. And I was like, ah, oh, dude, they're playing that. No, no, they're playing a Commodore 64 game. And we find out that they live in Florence. Not not Florence, Florence. Florin <clears throat> Florin, actually. As I a kid I told you I'm gonna be telling some stories from my history of this film. For the longest time I actually thought that this was set in Florence, which is a real country in about the region that this actual thing is set in. And you'll, you're probably thinking, but it's a fantasy. Well, yeah, it's a fantasy that involves Australia and Greenland and Asia and Sicily. <laughs> I, I mean, come on, right? There's, no, there, there's so many real-life applications. This is, there's a specific term for this type of fiction, which I don't remember right now, where it refers to... It, DC does this. The United States exists, but somewhere in the United, exists, in the United States there's Metropolis and Gotham City. That, that 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 type of thing is it's a fairly common thing in fiction. It's real life, but edit, edit, edit. And usually people don't actually put the time and effort to make it work, but let's not go into the world building here. Point being, if you just want to think of this place as Florence, it barely changes anything. <clears throat> Although ironically, since they filmed this up in the British Isles, rather than down in the Italian boot, I mean whatever. Although I guess that'd be like the Italian uh cuff? I don't know what you'd call that area. Because that's actually far northern Italy. But I'm getting off topic. What I really want to talk about is how she's just a dick. She just orders around like a dick. Uh, this this gets into the parody thing. All he ever apparently said to her was, I love you. And she just orders him around constantly. Huh. True love. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have to make fun. 
because the film is doing it. Would you believe that I actually fully believe in this concept? The concept of true love, as they deposit it throughout the film. The idea of two people who match each other on such a deep and, I don't have a better word, intimate level, that they really are a match in that mathematically beautiful kind of a way. I do believe in that concept. And not just because I've seen it in, I'm going to go with two couples in my life, but because it just makes sense to me. I just wanted to mention that because as much as I'm going to be mocking it, you know, this then leads to the kid being like, well, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. When does this get good? Boy, how many times have we asked that of fiction over the years? <laughs> uh, it's okay. He was taken away and murdered by pirates. Oh, murdered by pirates is good. Uh, kids, I, I, my own niece is, uh, is, is kind of going through that phase as I'm, as I'm recording this and it's just kind of, I mean, I was there too. I remember. I, I do. I remember. I used to watch just the action scenes of some of the old Star Trek films because those are the parts I really liked. <laughs> I used to rewatch just the uh, the Battle of Endor and Return of the Jedi. <sighs> Anywho, <clears throat> by the way, I lost track, but there's a Garfield thing. There's Cheetos. There's an Empire Strikes Back cup. There's a He-Man toy. Um, like I said, I lost track after a bit. There's just tons and tons and tons of product placement on the, the desk that Savage is sitting on. I wonder if they actually paid for that, or if that was just kind of something they threw in for set pieces, because product placement wasn't quite the same back then that it became later on. It's not like in, you know, World War Z, where he has to stop and very slowly drink the Pepsi. Just glug that sucker down. Anyways, <clears throat> so... This then leads us to the fact that he's super dead, and now the we see Prince Humperdinck, that would be Chris Sarandon's character, a.k.a. Jack Skellington, who is going to marry a commoner. Okay, that's that's actually pretty legit. He does have the right to choose his bride, because nobility used to really, really suck. I say used to. You get my point. And furthermore, the idea of marrying a commoner in order to try and placate the masses. Well, let's just say that that sort of thing has happened before. Of course, doing so upsets the nobility, and that kind of leads to the whole political gamble. You, do you want to placate the rich people or placate the poor people? And you do have to placate both, because both have the ability to destroy you, just in different ways. So, I should probably stop getting all Game of thrones here, because... <clears throat> <laughs> This then leads to her rushing out to get at her. I want to take a quick moment to praise the set design. Most of this is just outdoor shots of actual castles and, you know, beautiful countryside, British Isles, as I mentioned. But I really do like a lot of what they do with some of the sets and some of the, the dressings. Just, just definite praise. Probably the only exception to that, and it's really brief, is there's this scene where they're at the base of the cliff, when they start to go up it. That set kind of sucked. That looked like a Star Trek, you know, old Star Trek set, and not in a good way. The rest of it's good stuff, though. <sighs> so, she rushes off. She gets captured by Bassini. Notice that we... There's two things I want to talk about really quick here. Let's, let's start with the silly thing. Quotables. Name your favorite quote from this film. Go ahead. I'll wait. I expect there to be a lot in the comment section of this film, even if I didn't ask for it, because this film is amazingly quotable. I would say that this film is up there, if not surpassing, the Star Wars prequels in terms of just sheer quotability, because there's a lot of good quotes that are very applicable and very memorable, and of course apply in a lot of situations. That's the applicable thing. I think it works, and Lord knows this film has really, really entered cultural conscience. How much so? Did you know that uh, Clinton, as in President Clinton, I just realized this film is coming out after the election, so let me to clarify, Bill Clinton <laughs> was, was really into this film, and so was Pope John Paul II, who actually recognized Carrie Elwes on site. That is how much this film has entered popular consciousness. consciousness. Not a lot of things can claim that. There's a few. You know, Doctor Who, Star Wars, Star Trek, Mario, probably at this point. You know. Anywho. <clears throat> so, uh, that's quotabilities. Lots of great quotes. 
Anybody want a peanut? But the second thing that really strikes me about this is the film, despite its humorous things, is trying to do actual storytelling tropes, para ejemplo. We have the three characters introduced like this, actually. Um, and that's Sean Wallace, uh, Mandy Patinkin, and Andre the Giant. So we see, uh, let's see, it's Vicini, Inigo, and Fezzik. I've got a lot of names to keep in my head. Please forgive me here. And I've, I'm ramming these ruminations down my own throat here. So the three of them are introduced very particularly. Andre approaches quietly and gently and just knocks her out with a Vulcan neck pinch very efficiently. And then... The, the guys who are trying to chop down some trees go by, so I do apologize for that. Not a lot I can do about that. It's either that or just quit recording for like eight hours and I can't lose that kind of time. So I apologize. Anyways, then Vicini is constantly shown as being menacing and he just kind of talks in that sort of voice where <laughs> I didn't hire you for your brains. Do you want me to leave you back where I found you in Greenland? No, no. Instead... He is portrayed as very antagonistic. He is clearly shown to be someone who might actually be a villain. Not only because of his word choice, but be and because, you know, in other words, he's being very antagonistic, but the fact that the very way he speaks is he's basically shouting and talking down to and being insulting to everyone else. By total contrast, both Inigo and, on <clears throat> and Fezzik are far more soft-spoken and speak in far more moderate and calm tones. Both of them express worry about having to kill this poor girl, and, you know, well, I guess this is just how that's going to be because we've been hired by this guy and we need the money. But they also then cut to Fezzik joking. Well, joking, but the rhyming. Also, the music kind of goes lighthearted when the two of them talk. Now, all this sounds like a duh, and I do apologize for pointing it out, but the fact is, the movie is going way out of its way to portray Vizzini in a bad light, and both Inigo and Fezzik in a good light, which is important, because it means the moment we see them, we're already on board with them. So, n this is kind of a critical thing that I feel a lot of fiction fails at. If you're going to have someone turn coat, establishing that in advance is something that really helps, and doing that well like this also really helps, and not a lot of fiction really seems to know how to do that, in my opinion. So, this then leads to <laughs> the shrieking eels. I'm not going to do that again. I don't want to hurt my throat. Please forgive me. And I kind of screwed it up anyways. I need to talk about beetle snuff if I really want to get that voice going. But, this find the shrieking eels, and then all of a sudden, <gasps> don't worry. You look nervous. The, the eels don't get him. And Savage's so like, well, I wasn't nervous. I mean, I, okay, I was a little nervous. Framing devices are one of those interesting things when it comes to fiction. They have an obvious value, but that value is in how they're applied. Because you can accomplish a lot of different things with a framing device. And frankly, I feel that too often, and this is my opinion again, framing devices are just used because, you know, for no actual benefit. By contrast, I do think it adds to this film's overall approach. Not only because of the obvious passage of time presentation or the connection between the son and the grandfather, but because their commentary helps add to the, to the narrative that we are then watching. It is a bit of a meta-narrative, nowhere near as much as the original book, of course, but it does add to it because, well, first of all, the kids slowly getting into the story more and more is obviously a nice touch. But how many of you have ever been in that moment? I don't actually have a a book that I would read for fun. All I have is my Star Trek reference book here. But how many of you have been here? Where you're going through it, it's like, oh, God. And you just kind of start getting more and more into it, and it's just... And you're like, you're all tensing up a little bit as you're going through, and it's just, oh, my God. What, what happens next? What happens next? Please tell me I'm not the only one who, who does that when it comes to books. I haven't read in a long time for fun. I read for the show, for the most part, which is why this is the only book in range. All my books that I read for enjoyment are in a box in the, in the, in the closet. But I used to get like that when I used to read fairly frequently. You know, you, you get into it, right? Especially because what your brain is doing is it's picturing everything. You're, you're, you're piecing together what's happening, and so... Well, that is one of the values of books. That's actually one of the reasons I refuse to ruminate on books, because oh, one of the major points is you are constructing what you are perceiving. 
you are de deciding what they look like and how they sound and how the scene is constructed and how the camera's working and all that fun stuff. And you are thus doing it in a way that appeals to you. The, the imagination will always do better than what, you know, an actual presentation can do and all that jazz. And thus we see Mr. Savage's character, whose name I still haven't looked up and I'm not going to bother doing so, is getting into it as he's picturing these shrieking eels. So, uh, we see a couple of signs, probably the first real sign that Vizzini is not actually as smart as he makes himself out to be, is it, go, go do the thing! And, and then the other thing! Like, he doesn't know nautical terms at all. He even says left earlier instead of port. But more to the point, he also uh, just does not seem to understand how to use language or anything. And we'll be seeing a few signs of this going forward. This is one of the first big signs. There's a smaller sign earlier, but we get the impression he's not as smart as he makes himself out to be. Which makes sense. After all, you don't have to be that smart to have the ability to think through things, you know, in terms of intelligence, which of course then makes his desire to constantly portray himself as very intelligent uh, a bit of a pseudo-tragic thing, because, well, honestly, he's actually a bit of a chronic in this case. He thinks he is a big fish. He is very much not. Anywho, <clears throat> this leads to one of the better scenes in the film. Now, uh, Inigo hasn't really been in the film that much, which is funny because he's probably my favorite character in the film. He's in a hurry. You know, they cut the rope, he's hanging on, stay here, kill him if he gets to, to this top, if not otherwise, well, sure, whatever. And so he's just kind of pacing, does a few things. And, uh, could you hurry it up? No, I'm kind of, okay, is, is everything going to be, look, look I'm, this is really hard to do. Okay, okay, okay. Um, how about if I throw you the rope? I, I've got the section of rope, I can throw you the rope. Yeah, but then you'll just let it go and I'll die. Uh, that's a, that's a good point. He can't trust me. Uh, oh, I, I can swear on the soul of a Spaniard. No, I've met too many Spaniards. I swear on the soul of my father. You will reach it to the top alive. And then immediately and without hesitation, throw me the rope. Now, it's kind of funny, but it's also very deadly serious because Wesley is actually a good judge of character. He de demonstrates that several times throughout the course of this film. And this is the first time he really demonstrates this skill. He sees that Inigo means that. Really, actually means that. So he then entrusts his life to this total stranger who is going to try and kill him because he trusts that. Because he's And he's right. He is absolutely correct to do so. In fact, when he gets to the top, you know, he pulls out his weapon and Inigo's like, no, 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 take a rest, take a rest. It's okay. It's like, okay, I, I guess I'll go ahead and do that. And they just sit and they chat. You'll notice also that he's kind of irritable at the idea of being accused of having six fingers. It's just such a weird thing. Until Inigo points out, you know, that's the man who killed my father. And then once again, without hesitation and without saying anything, he holds up his hand. He's like, nope. Five fingers. Because again, he, he recognizes what, what's happening and what's going on here. And this is actually going to come up several times in the future. This then leads to uh, Inigo giving the backstory. This is probably my favorite revenge story ever, by the way. And a huge amount of that is down to Potemkin's performance. He really nails his portrayal here. This is then funny because this is then immediately followed by the best sword duel in modern cinematic history. I am willing to be proven wrong on that. But I actually did some research on this before I sat down and looked into this. And in the last uh, 30 years, I haven't seen anything that surpasses this. Maybe there is. I haven't seen all of cinema, after all, so there's probably something out there. But this is a damned good duel. So I st And I mentioned I did some research. Did you know Peter Diamond and Bob Anderson actually personally trained both of them? Also, this is one of the last scenes they filmed in the film. So that way they would have even more time to practice. Oh, that's right. Did you know those aren't stuntmen? That really is Carrie Elwes and Mandy Potemkin. Potemkin, excuse me. I'm sorry, I'm stumbling over his name. Who are doing their their actual duel. And, God, it's I, I'm not into sword fighting as much as I used to because I, you know, ever since I got run over by a car, I can't really move the same way. I basically have to relearn it from scratch at this point because I literally... Move differently. Sorry, my chair is being weird, so I'm trying to adjust it. There we go. 
But even from a complete amateur who hasn't practiced sword fighting in like 10 years, I can look at it and be like, damn, that is some good stuff. Oh, on the off chance you don't know who Peter Diamond and Bob Anderson are, they're... They're that. No, they're... <laughs> they are obviously sword trainers who, among other things, trained Errol Flynn. Yeah, that one. <laughs> They are they are excellent uh, fencers and sword specialists and just yeah the job they did here and the guys they trained for months by the way in ha in their spare time both Gary Elwes and Mandy Patinkin trained constantly and I'm just gonna try and talk over it at this point because I don't know how long they're gonna be out there so I apologize for that but for real this is a really 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 awesome duel. I have so little to say about the specifics because that would just involve me putting up slides behind me and going through the specifics, and I don't have time for that. But what I do have time for is to share something that I remember my sword fighting instructor te teaching me way, way, way back in the day. It boiled down to this. There's two types of duels. The first type of duel is you're trying to kill the other person. In that type of a duel, the goal is to be... It's a completely different type of everything. The way you stand, the way you hold your sword, the types of attacks you use, everything is completely different because a proper sword duel in that manner will probably be over in a few seconds. The moment one person manages to get one good hit in, it is over. Because they will then immediately go for the killing strike and it is over. That's the point of that kind of a duel. And it's if you're and he flat out said, you know, I'm not going to train you guys in this because A, you shouldn't be trying to kill someone with a sword anyways, and B, it's a completely different thing than what I'm familiar with. And he's referring to himself, obviously. Instead, he was going to teach us how to dance, is how he referred to it as. And this leads to his quote here, which I'm vaguely remembering here. The... <laughs> a proper duel is not about winning, is the quote. A proper duel is about having fun, showing off. It's kind of a competitive sport you know, like fencing, but the goal is not really to harm the other person. The goal is to defeat the other person. And that can be in uh, in how you do your footwork, that can be in how you do your style, that can be simply in managing to get more taps on the other person. It depends on what you're going for. But it's all about being as... I hate to use the word fancy, but I don't have a better word. To, to, to be as stylistic. You're going for style points, right? You're going for style points one way or the other. And that's a lot of what they do here. You'll notice that multiple times in the fight, they have a situation where they could easily kill the other. Both of them have this. They, they just sit back and let the other do their thing because they're enjoying the show, so to speak, just as we are. And so this whole section is... I, I'm sorry for gushing so much. I just absolutely love this. And, of course, this leads to that bit at the end. Inigo loses and says in a wonderfully dark tone, Give me quickly, please. Because he's lost, and that sucks. He's failed his father, he's failed everything, and it's just all, all of it is right there in that one line of dialogue. Which leads to Wesley's response. I would sooner d destroy a stained glass window. This is a work of art. You are a masterful swordsman. I would never want to kill you. But I can't have you following me, so bonk. This also gives us a reason to root for this random stranger who's totally not Wesley. Wink, wink. Because we see that he is not actually a cold-blooded killer or a brutal murderer or anything else. He's just doing what he has to in order to accomplish what he wants to. Which leads us to the encounter with Andre. The Andre scene is... I don't have much to say about it. I do like Andre the Giant. I actually used to follow wrestling, believe it or not. American wrestling here in the States. But... Most of the people I liked, I don't think have been involved in a while. You know, the Million Dollar Man, uh, uh, The Undertaker, who I think he's actually still performing. I could be wrong about that. And, of course, Andre the Giant, who was awesome. Um, Andre the Giant, he's, by all accounts, a pretty cool guy off-camera. He was having trouble with his lines, and he was having trouble concentrating. And so they did this thing where they actually recorded, they, they had... Uh, an audio tape, and you know they would record the back and forth of scenes, which Andre could then listen to and kind of practice along with 
because someone else has basically done the scene for him, and now he can say, okay, this is my lines, and this is kind of the intonation I should go for. Because he did care about doing the best job he could. He was also apparently pretty cool on the set, um, when he wasn't having flatulence issues, of course. Unfortunately, Andre the Giant is a giant, and un unlike fiction, in real life, that's actually a pretty bad thing. He was still having issues at this point in time with pain. In fact, he had recently recovered from a back surgery just prior to filming this, so a lot of the physical feats you see him perform in the film, he's actually not. He's actually not doing that. He's not carrying people or lifting people. They did a lot of very careful camera work to hide that fact. So, that sucks. Not the fact that they did a good job hiding it, just I, I feel bad for Andre, you know. It's not, he was born that way, there's not a lot you can do about that, right? But nevertheless, they have this thing, you know, we, we should fight each other. Okay. Are you playing with me? I want you to feel like you had a good show of it. Okay. I don't have much to say about that scene. It's a good scene, it's a good fight. Uh, you'll notice once again that we see that the man in black... Aha uh -huh, is not actually trying to kill someone. This also leads to a quote I had to write down. Keep in mind, I'm recording this video in 2020. Why do you wear the mask? Oh, uh, no, they're just terribly comfortable. I think everyone will be wearing them in the future. Anyways, this then leads to the Vizzini scene. Originally, I wrote in my notes, I have nothing to add to the Vizzini scene, because it's amazing. Like, what do you say about something that's amazing? I can't possibly deconstruct it. Oh, wait. So, first of all... <laughs> first of all, Wallace Shawn nails this really hard. And this is a classic double act. The straight man, that would be Carrie Elwes' character, and the, the the comical one, which is being portrayed by Wallace Shawn. And they both are perfect for that. Uh, Carrie Elwes is really good at doing the straight man effect. In fact, he does that a lot in both this film and Robin Hood Men in Tights. Y you gotta have someone who just points to the audience and goes, this is ridiculous, so that the audience has someone to relate to and bounce their own feelings off of. Like, really? And that's a lot of what he does in this film. But one of the other important things is the Leslie Nielsen effect, which I haven't actually codified as a lorium because I, it's, it's barely come up, but it is, I've actually heard other people refer to this concept. For those of you not aware, Le Leslie Nielsen is a comedian. Now, I put that in quotes because he's, he was actually a serious dramatic actor who had the unique talent of not laughing at jokes while he was telling them. Now, I know that sounds like a weird thing to comment on, but at the time of filming of several works, the biggest and most obvious one being Airplane, the people they kept bringing in you know, to do test reads would laugh at the jokes they were reading. And they're like, that doesn't work if you laugh at the joke. We need someone who's going to be able to say it with total sincerity. Leslie Nielsen was a dramatic actor who didn't find half the jokes all that funny. Thus, he became the perfect comedic actor. This is a specific approach and formula to comedy, trying to be as absolutely sincere about saying something completely ridiculous. If you've ever watched South Park, you've seen this formula before. It's their most, well, it's one of their most prolific formulas, right up there with gross humor, which is the other thing they tend to focus on. You know, it, it, it's not as funny if they're in on the gag, but if someone walks up to you and says, Oh my God, son, please... Take this, this item from me. It's the only way to defeat the guy. And it's, and he's just, he's doing this on vent as he's in a, in a mic chat. Uh, uh, and he's just sitting there at the computer. But it has to be sincere. That's what sells the comedy of it. The fact that they are so straight faced about something so ridiculous. The Leslie Nielsen effect, right? This is half of why this succeeds, because Wallace Shawn, despite being the joking character here, is actually playing this completely sincere. As he goes through his lines, at no point does he start going, <laughs> you know, or anything like that. No, he is absolutely assured of his superiority, and he can prove it, after all. Naturally, everyone, everyone, knows Iocane Powder is actually from Australia, and Australia is populated by criminals, and therefore, you as a criminal cannot be trusted. So I clearly cannot trust the class in front of me. You know, it's just... The, the logical leaps he takes are ludicrous and stupid. Uh, my personal favorite is the fact that you, you defeated the Spaniard, which means you must have studied, and in studying, you learned that man is mortal. What? <laughs> the leaps are ridiculous. 
But of course, he has to have that portrayal of it. Then, of course, he also, uh, as he's as he's discussing and going through this, it becomes more and more clear that he really is not actually all that smart. In fact, the final thing he attempts, as he's effectively stalling for time, so convinced of his superiority, is he says, "Oh my God, what was that?" Switch. Which means he decided that it was in, you know, his drink. He assumed the most blatant, obvious thing possible. That his drink was the one poisoned, so he swaps the drinks, and he's screwed. Uh, so he dies. Notice he's the first casualty, by the way. In fact, he's one of the only major characters that actually dies in this film. No one's sad to see him go, which is a shame, because Volishon is awesome. By the way, this is a good time to mention, they've had several little sidesteps uh, every now and again in between these scenes where the prince, Mr. Humperdinck, is slowly tracking them because he's a legendary tracker. Totally why he's able to keep up. Actually, I will freely admit, I never caught this before, and I've seen this film like 20 times. There's a bit where, as he's tra tracking them... So, obviously, I caught the Gilder thing. He keeps mentioning, Gilder must have taken them. If this is Gilder, I'm going to be super upset. How dare Gilder, and blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah, duh. He's, he's working his troops up, and he's portraying an, an act so that his troops th have more reason to think about the Gilder thing, just spreading the lie around. Because you take you push that into the barracks, and the men will then t tell it to their wives, will tell it to their friends, and he's just pushing the rumor out there. Okay, makes sense. What I never caught before, though, as he grabs, this is not an Iocane powder, it's just the thing I used to clean my nails, but... <sighs> Did you know this is literally called a sword? I looked for so long to try and figure, find one of those things. It's, it's called a sword. Anyways, <clears throat> so he lifts the Iocane powder and he sniffs it. He says, Iocane powder! Mm, I would stake my life on it. What? Remember, Iocane... Iocane... Iocane? The powder has no odor. That was actually a point that was made earlier. Anywho, <clears throat> I asked you a question earlier. What's your favorite quote from this film? Now, I know what my favorite quote is, and we're not going to get to it for a little bit, but there are two quotes that have resonated in my mind ever since. They're very close to each other, which is why I'm mentioning them in one bundle here. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. I know, I know. Laura, you're too cynical. But what can I say? I live in the planet that I live in. One of these days I'll get out of here, I swear. There might be room. I don't know. <laughs> if you give me the right money. No, the point is that that quote really stuck with me. I don't think it's 100% true. I don't. But it certainly says a lot about the mentality there. But no, the quote that really stuck with me, as sad as this may sound, is the, the line, I died that day. That is an easy line to mess up. There's certain uh, lines of dialogue that have to be said in an extremely specific tone. And there's like 40 or 50 variants that don't sound all that different, but carry different weight behind them. There has to be an emphasis on the way she said that. I died. See, even I, I just screwed it up, but I'm, I'm, it's because I'm dragging it out to make it more obvious. I died. The emphasis is on the died that day, just to really do it. And it has to have impact. I died that day. There needs to be like a push there as she's saying it. And so forth and so on. Forgive me, speaking as a voice director, this is the kind of thing that comes up all the freaking time. Because even a simple line needs to have very specific connotations. Which is why I give special praise, because the way she says it is absolutely perfect. Naturally, this leads to the hill. Very, very Monty Python sequence as they're going, ah, and tumbling down the hill, you know. Because that's right. I mean, couldn't you just see that in a Monty Python sketch? And it, and like it would just come back periodically. It's like the, the modern method of travel instead of wheels or wagons. All right, I'm heading out to the market. <laughs> Have fun. Oh, shoot, I forgot to... Hang on, you forgot your wallet. Could you come bring it for me? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Anyways. So they start cocking and kissing, and everything's awesome. And he mentions a quote, Death cannot stop true love. I've seen too much fiction not to laugh at that. 
Uh, this is when we really start to see the men in tights shades of Carrie Elvis's performance. He's He's got a very specific tone as he describes everything. There's just sort of a flippancy to it as he's just, again, kind of straight-faced. Oh, yes, that's that, and lovely place. I rather enjoy it. I don't think there's going to be an issue. And then he, of course, describes the story of Pirate Roberts, which is... Uh, probably <laughs> a load of nonsense, but at the same time, it wouldn't surprise me if they could get away with that kind of thing back in the day. You couldn't really do that now, because now we have things called pictures. But still, you could see how with proper care and transitioning, and I like to think that Inigo went on to become the Dread Pirate Roberts, because I think he'd be really good at it. But anyways, moving on. And of course, branding is so important when it comes to piracy. <sighs> no, really, it actually is. Although... Uh, I can't mention this without someone bringing up CCP Grey, so I'm just going to mention it myself. I swear, though, I actually was going to say that before, you know, the knowledge of that person existed, because branding's how that works. You don't want a big, expensive fight. You want people to surrender. And lo and behold, a lot of people surrendered to the Dread Pirate Roberts. So here we go. Oh, yeah, by the way, the rodents of unusual size, which I don't have much to say about. They're actually people in the outfits. You can kind of tell if you watch. It's clearly a person struggling around. And one of the persons uh, was arrested <laughs> for for being drunk. Uh, I wasn't able to find more details on this, unfortunately. Thankfully, they were let out. But part of the, the story here is that they were arrested, and they're like, no, you don't understand. I have, to, I have to get to a shoot. I need to climb inside a giant rat suit and attack a guy. And they're like, yeah, okay, buddy. No, seriously. <laughs> Anyways. <clears throat> So, this also leads to another little thing. You ever notice how a lot of really good fiction has moments that are clearly accidents, but, you know, they, they left in because it works really well? Lord of the Rings is a great example of that. So, Carrie Elwes's character, excuse me, Carrie Elwes, not Wesley, was having trouble with the timing. He was supposed to be knocked on the head by the Count, the Six-Fingered Man, you know, the Mr. Aristocrat. But Mr. Aristocrat kept kind of whiffing it, and he kept getting the timing wrong because he was trying to judge it, and it just kept looking wrong. So they did several takes, and finally he's like, "Just go ahead and just go ahead and hit me, you know, that way I can know it's there." And he's like, "Okay." So he did hit him, and according to Carrie Elwes, he got hit, and the next thing he remembered is waking up in the hospital because he actually was hit hard enough to knock him out. We are very lucky; things did not go worse than that. Unlike what fiction tells you, just being hit and being knocked out is not just a stun button; that can cause severe and serious damage long term. So, by great fortune, it was not enough to cause him any damage that I'm aware of, but holy crap. <laughs> so when you see the take in the film, that is actually Carrie Elwes being knocked out in real life. Anywho, <clears throat> so, this is when we see the bit with uh, Humperdinck marrying Buttercup, and the kid interrupts, wait! Wait, that's not fair! After all he did, it's not right. It, it shouldn't be. And I'm just sitting there going, yeah, no, I'm with you, kid. <laughs> do you remember the first time you learned that life wasn't fair? I do. At least to a quote of mine, if you'll forgive me for sharing. Life isn't fair. That's why it's up to make us. It's up to us to make up the difference. So, of course, it's a dream sequence. And she makes a desperate plea, which he, of course, then strikes a deal. What's interesting about this sequence of events is up until now, unless you're really paying attention, there's nothing that really makes Humberdink out to be a villain, other than just being an aristocrat. But that just makes him a terrible human being, not a villain. So he gets the desperate plea from his wife, his wife-to-be, excuse me, and then he strikes a deal, and then the very next scene with no transition is just him talking about how he is the one who ordered Vizzini, ordered Vizzini in order to murder her, in order to start a war, but now he's going to have much more fun strangling her with her bare hands. Whoa! And the best part is he's so affable about it, because, well, he's horrifically evil, and this is how we show that. It's a good way to establish him as a villain. So then we see the machine, and this is when I am, you know, an, an idiot as a child, because as a ch when I first saw this, I didn't actually understand what the machine was doing. Yes, I know they explained it in the film. You can make fun of me. It's okay. I'm a moron. I'll, ex I'll admit that ten times out of ten. 
but I thought it was like pumping water into him. As a kid, I didn't think this was that much of a fantasy. I wasn't really thinking of it in that lens. I was thinking of it as more of a historical thing. Remember, this is set in Florence, right? Right? So, you know, there's a... Okay, there's swamps, there's quicksand, and there's giant beasts, but for the most part, I hadn't seen anything really fantastical. This is actually probably the most fantasy element in the entire film, is the machine, which drains life out of someone. Sure. So, yeah, at the time, I just assumed it was another element of the historical perspective, and it was pumping water into someone, which made me think that was really, really horrible, because that does sound pretty bad, doesn't it? Like I said, make fun if you want. Either way, the machine is very messed up. This then leads to the arrest of the forest. Why? Like, why does he want the forest rounded up? Anyways, um, and Fezzik and Inigo, they, they meet back up. Of course, Fezzik is part of the Brute Squad. In fact, funny little side note, he mentions he has a little bit of money. He probably has money because he was hired for the Brute Squad. Anywho, this also leads to uh, Sarandon, that is to say, Humperdinck, being a terrible liar. I find that very amusing because his portrayal over in Deep Space Nine, which I referenced earlier, has him portray... It's the episode Rivals, if you want to look it up. Um, has him portraying someone who is a terrible liar. Go figure. So then he says a line which actually really resonates with me, even though it's a fictional line by a fictional character who is in a work that is parodying the work. I nevertheless have to say, not one couple in a century has the chance you have. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's probably about right. Thankfully, thanks to sheer numbers and statistics, that, that variability is changing and we have greater ability to actually reach out to other people too. So that's kind of neat too, but... Yeah. Anyways, this also then leads to him deciding to prove that he's the villain by being even more horrific than his evil minion, played by the actual real-life aristocrat, who loses his composure for the only time in the whole film, where he's just, no, no, to 50! So, like, oh God, we have to find him, and they find the albino, and they take the cart, which is very important later. A lot of smart storytelling in this, by the way. A lot of putting pieces down so that they can later be picked up and be useful in the narrative. But I want to talk about something. I know this is going to sound like a dumb thing to point out, but screw you. <laughs> I don't mean that. You're awesome. But, um... I've talked before about the worst feeling in the universe. To clarify, it's when things are bad and horrible and awful. But then, but then... It's okay, it's going to be over, things are going to get better. And there's just that moment of relief of, oh my god, and then it's actually worse than it was before. That is the worst feeling. I know some of you have experienced that, and I'm sorry, because no one should have to experience that. By contrast, thinking that things <laughs> are bad, and then... It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. No, it's actually not going to be okay. Wait, it actually worked out. Is one of the best feelings. That sudden... Because it, it, it's the double point. It's the double point in the bar that really matters. It's not just things are bad and then things get better. It's things are bad and then things are going to get better. No, they don't. Yes, they do. That sensation is unique. Now, by contrast to the previous thing, I've only felt that way a couple of times in my life. And it is a very, very unique and awesome sensation. And I bring this up because that's exactly what happens to Inigo. He, he gets something, and he pulls out the sword and says, Guide me to where I need to go. And plunk! Oh. And in just total devastation, he just leans against the tree. And then the thing opens up, and he just kind of looks up like... Now, obviously, this is being portrayed for comedic effect, but you can see the seriousness of it underneath that. This then leads to what is often considered one of the funniest scenes, if not the funniest scene in the whole thing. Uh, hang on. Got to get my notes on the previous page. Yeah, here we go. Billy Crystal and Carol Kane, who just riff off of each other. As per my usual, whenever I'm asked to look at a comedic work, I'm going to kind of analyze the type of comedy. This is, uh, this is what I call ping-pong comedy. 
So before I go any further, on the trip out when they were going to film, because obviously they had to fly out to England, uh, they actually spent the trip talking and discussing, building a bit of a backstory for their characters, and just building a rapport so that they could naturally and smoothly talk with, through, and over each other. That's ping pong, by the way. In order to properly do it, you have to be, you have to see where the ball's going, in other words, the, the conversation, and it has to hit the other person. They have to hit it in just such a way where you're ready to hit it back, and then forward and back, and then forward and back, and so forth and so on. It's very fluid. It's also really, really hard to do. Having that kind of natural and smooth chemistry with someone generally only comes with experience and talent, or with actually being that close to someone. That's why I give them such praise, because they got together and basically emulated the time and you know, exposure to each other thanks to experience and talent. But they still did all the prep work, and apparently this is not the first take that we see in the film, because for the most part, they just kind of riffed. They had a rough script, but they just kind of improved their way through it. And apparently several of the cast, including Carrie Elwes, were just could not laugh, or could not not laugh. They couldn't help themselves, as they were just riffing on each other. And this is very, very funny. The chemistry between the two is amazing, and the two smoothly dance back and forth in the dialogue. And I love how they just bounce off of everyone else, too. It's, it's just an immediate rejoinder. You should have gone with your earlier story. It works a lot better. Now, he probably owes you money. It was to blame. Just, he, he just keeps going. I love this scene. Anywho, I love, I love uh, the chainsaws, too. <laughs> so... This then leads to, uh, there's actually a bit where they say, you know, you have to wait 15 minutes. They don't wait 15 minutes, and naturally things go badly, and he's disabled as a consequence. I suppose that's a good thing because of the timing of the episode. Remember, excuse me, the, episode, the movie, because he barely stopped her from committing suicide in time. So if they had waited eh, about another five minutes, that would have been her dead on the floor, unless they wanted another miracle. So, <clears throat> This then leads to some more straight-faced comedy. If only we had a wheelbarrow. Uh, if only we had a Holocaust cloak. Yeah, I got that too. Why didn't you list this in our assets earlier? So, they do the big Dread Pirate Roberts thing. Nice, intimidate role. We'll notice that the charisma score is probably Wesley's highest score overall. I'll talk more about that in a second. This then leads to this wonderful scene where the captain of the guard, who's the only one left, drops the gate, Fezzik catches it, and then just tosses it right back up, and then he walks up. And that's important, though, not just for the comedic visual, but for the fact that now the captain of the guard knows exactly how strong Fezzik is. So he's just kind of quiet as a mouse. I, I don't have any gate key. Tear his arms off. Oh, you mean this gate key. Because now he knows that he really can tear his arms off, and they really don't have time for this. Here, here you go. Here you go. This then leads to... Well... Uh, I'm, I'm going to do this in a weird order, okay? I'm going to skip over a few scenes and just kind of discuss, because I want to talk about a few scenes last, if that's all right with you. So, uh, Buttercup pulls out the dagger. She's willing to commit suicide. By total coincidence, uh, Wesley has actually gone into her room and decided not to say anything until that moment, for some reason. So she's all like, oh, you're amazing, you're amazing, you're amazing. But can you ever forgive me? And what terrible atrocity did you commit lately? He just says that so blasé. That is that is Carrie Elwes in a nutshell. And again, one of the reasons why I love Robin Hood Men in Tights so well is because he, he's just so blasé about his presentation. This then leads to the to the pain speech. To the death. No, to the pain. Funnily enough, I'm pretty sure Wesley in his prime would absolutely destroy Humperdinck in a fight. But obviously... He's old and disabled. That's why he's just laying there. And that's why he plays for time. He gives this big, long speech about exactly how much he's going to ruin and wreck him. And then finally, it, you can see that it's really getting to Humperdinck. And he's just, his, his morale is being broken and crept and brought down. And finally, he's like, I think you're bluffing. Possibly. Or not. And then he manages to stand, point the sword. And then Humperdinck immediately capitulates. Ladies and gentlemen a high charisma score. Specifically, a successful intimidate role. A lot of this movie could actually be a D&D &D campaign. Just, you could see it. You could see the roles. You could see how the characters go off the, 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 into Nana land with regards to how they're doing their story. It lines up astonishingly well. 
You can just see the GM being frustrated as the carefully planned out arc about the conflict with Gilder gets completely abandoned. It just, you know, it's all there. Anyways, so Humperdinck lives. I wonder if he had his war with Gilder. I mean, he's got plenty of, of evidence for it. I mean, he lost a couple of people, sure, whoop de doo I think he lost like a grand total of seven people in the course of this. He's still got plenty of troops. If he thought he could defeat Gilder in a war, which actually would really amuse me if Gilder would paste them, but let's not get into that, then he still thinks that. He still is the prince, so he doesn't really have the, the exact cast of spell that he used to have, except for the fact that his beloved bride has now been kidnapped. Oh, no! It was those Gilder rascals. They're the ones who took her. I knew it all along. My intelligence has shown me exactly this, and they killed my men in, in part of their attempt to sabotage. They nearly killed the king, and basically he's totally cool to go and attempt his attack on Gilder. Just food for thought. It's okay, everything works out for the main heroes. I mean, Wesley has a fortune from being the Dread Pirate Roberts, Inigo is about to have a fortune from being the Dread Pirate Roberts, and I'm pretty sure he's going to bring Andre on, excuse me, Fezzik on board too. And they get to live happily ever after, and everything's cool. So it is a happily ever after. It's just interesting to think about the mess they left behind, since they deliberately left Humperdinck alive, which is part of why the idea of Gilder pasting them amuses me so much. You got your war! Congrats! But I said, you've noticed by now the scene I skipped over. Inigo goes up. There are uh, five guards, and... Hang on, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, five guards plus the Count. And so he's like, all right, fight me. I counted. It took him six seconds. It could actually be less than six seconds in order to bring those guys down. To continue the D&D &D parallel, imagine if you're the GM and you've put down six enemies, five rook, mook, mooks and a boss, and one of the players kills all five mooks in one round with what is effectively one action. Because that's basically what Inigo manages here. This, of course, is awesome, but also helps to explain why the Count then is like, uh, nope, and then just runs, and naturally decides to slam things in his favor by pulling out the dagger, throwing it in the stomach, and that's the end of that. And, of course, as a man so devoted to the, to the, the study of pain, that's why he sticks around, because he's fascinated by the idea of you spending your entire life just to fail at, at fulfilling your revenge. How fascinating. He sounds so wonderfully distant as he's saying it. But that leads to one of my favorite scenes in all of cinematic history. Everything about this upcoming scene is poetry. He gets up. The music slowly does this incline where it, the music just kind of is quiet in the background as he's deflecting, deflects. Every sword clash can, comes with a huh from the music. And then there's a, so what happens is there's a sequence, a flurry, a sequence, a flurry, and a sequence. And each sequence in this music, I'm using totally wrong terminology because I'm an idiot, but each sequence is a little bit louder, a little bit faster paced, a little bit more energetic in terms of how it is. So we can feel the energy of the scene building in the music as it gets more and more. And each single shot, and he actually says the wonderful line, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father prepared to die. And he says that five times throughout the course of that sequence. I counted. And of course, the Count starts to back off and shows actual visible fear, which makes sense since the actual actor had literal physical fear because the fact that he had actually been physically cut during a previous attempt here and he was actually afraid of being cut again. But speaking of real life coming into that, this then leads to a f so we, we've wonderful presentation, wonderful turnabout, this then leads to the double slashes. Offer me money. Power to. Promise me that. Offer me everything I ask for. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. I really love that line, and I really love its portrayal. It was not until... I sat down to do this rumination and was analyzing and looking into the behind the scenes that I found out that that line was effectively real. You see, uh, Mandy Potemkin's father actually died several years prior, quite a few, like 14 years prior to this, of cancer. And he, in his own words, 
felt like he was saying that, that he was slicing down and cutting down the cancer that killed his real-life father in that scene. And God, it shows. I, <laughs> and thus, this is something I referenced earlier, his portrayal about his father has been very legit and has been some of the most sincerely excellent acting the whole film. It turns out it's arguably not acting. Now, I wouldn't say that. It is still acting. Using a real-life experience to perform a fictional one is an absolutely valid tool when it comes to acting. So I don't think it, you know, that doesn't count or it gets less credit. Because that itself is a skill, and it's not that hard to replicate. Or excuse me, it is very hard to replicate that sensation when you're not actually in that moment. So, huge props to Mr. Patinkin, which I, I really hope I haven't been saying his name wrong this entire time. Love that. Love that scene so much. And I wanted to end there, because the film keeps going. You know, they, they have the fight with Humperdinck, and they leave. Happily ever after, the, the son, you know, the kid really wants the grandpa to come back. The grandpa says, as you wish, which is really touching and awesome. But for me, that scene, I want my father back, that scene is the conclusion of the film. Um, and it's, it's <laughs> I, I, I cannot gush about it enough. <sighs> I hope you have enjoyed my thoughts on this film. I look forward to seeing a comment section, which will be nothing but quotes from the film. I will see you next time, guys. Whoops. Wrong thing. I'm not doing Star Trek. <laughs>